Welcome to the Conscious Clinician Podcast. We have honest conversations about the triumphs and challenges of pelvic health physical therapy. Each week, we bring you inspiration and practical tips to thrive in your work. And now, here's your hosts, Dr. Monica Stefanovich and Dr. Sammy Steele. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, we have Dr. Yolanda Johnson, who is a board-certified pediatrician in private practice in the metro Atlanta area and a certified health and wellness coach on the podcast today. Yolanda is passionate about helping women in healthcare conquer overwhelm, build healthy boundaries, and get unstuck. She is mother to four amazing sons and enjoys running, reading, and napping in her free time. Welcome, Yolanda. Happy to have you on, Yolanda. Looking forward to our chat today. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. I I am so grateful to have the opportunity. So, Yolanda, given the fact that you're a doctor and a health coach helping women in healthcare, I feel like there's got to be a story here, like something that is in your past that led you to this point in time. I would love to hear what started you on the health coaching and wellness coaching journey. Sure. So it was really a need for my own health to improve and my own wellness to improve. Like many women in healthcare, many of the clients that I serve, I have my own burnout story. I started off after residency really wanting to do all of the things involved in general pediatrics. So I sought a position that allowed me to do everything and And everything, I mean, admitting patients from the emergency department, taking care of newborns, seeing patients in the outpatient setting. And so I really wanted to do everything that I did in residency. And so I found an amazing position that allowed me to do just that. And (laughs) this story, as I'm saying it, it actually, it starts the buildup of overwhelm, but I really did want to do everything that I learned to do. And for a while, I, I really enjoyed it. And after 12 years of building a pretty healthy patient base, of taking every fourth night call, of double booking slots, of working through lunch, I really just spiraled downward into to burnout, really. There were some other factors that influenced that state for me, but just like the culmination of that, I had a growing family at the time. Uh, after 12 years, our family of three grew to a family of six. And so I was really trying to juggle this career that was growing, but also to take care of my family. And in not saying no, I know we're going to talk about boundaries a little bit later, but in not saying no to anything, I found myself super overwhelmed. And I really don't think that it was just that, but I also think that that combined with in that particular position, I just did not see anyone stepping back from doing that thing that we were doing there. I didn't see anyone decelerating. I didn't see anyone going part-time. I didn't see anyone else saying no. I didn't really see a way that I could do that without really dumping on anyone. And I remember it vividly. I remember at night I was on call. It was October of 2014. I remember where I was sitting and I got a call from the hospital that I needed to go in to take care of something that really wasn't my responsibility to do. But being that it involved a patient and being that taking care of patients is what I do, I said yes to it, but I said yes. And after I hung up the phone, I said to my husband, you know, I will be looking for something else. I can't stay in this particular position because I am just burned out. So I left that position and I found my current position, which is amazing. I started off seeing half the patients I saw in my old position taking very, very minimal call, but after some time started to feel burned out again. And I thought, gosh, fortunately, I recognized that it was me. I was the common denominator here. And so I really started to do a very, very deep dive into what it was about me that was so prone to ending up like this in this wonderful position that had such a a slower pace compared with the previous one that allowed me so much more time with my patients, everything that I really wanted. Why was I here burning out again? And so I started the work of reading everything I could read, finding out a lot about myself. And what I was really doing at the time was self-coaching. I didn't really realize that's what it was. I discovered that sort of later in the journey, but I was doing self-coaching and felt so much better after having gone through the process of learning more about myself, retooling my thinking, reframing some of the ways that I was 
thinking about my work. And I felt that, gosh, I need to help others with this because these skills, while simple, are really not easy. And they are very often best introduced by a coach. I think that coaching really helps with cultivating some of those skills that are needed to have work come back into alignment with life. And so I I really wanted to help serve other women in that way. So that's how I found my way to coaching. Thank you, Yolanda, for sharing that. You know, I laughed when you said you realized the common denominator was you because I remember that moment for myself so vividly. Mm. And when that happened, it was so shocking. It was mm-hmm. like, it's me. <laughs> right. What? It's not <laughs> me. It's the job. Absolutely. And you mentioned that there were certain things you learned about yourself. So what kind of things did you learn as you were diving deep into this burnout approach to work? What were some of those things that came up? Well, two of the books that I read And these books to me were mind-blowing. They really just informed me a lot about how I approach things, and they were affirming, okay? So Quiet is One by Susan Cain. I just loved reading all about the introvert. And, you know, these are not concepts that are new. They're not groundbreaking. But I don't know that I had spent enough time really embracing who I was, which is not someone who really loved to be the center of attention or who needed to be at a podium. I did not love that, but those are things that are very often applauded, that are validated in our professions. And so quiet for me was very affirming. And then uh, Mindset by Carol Dweck was also a book that I came across during that time. And again, mind-blowing. Gosh, you have been navigating all of this with a very fixed mindset. And oh my goodness, this fixed mindset is not helpful for you at all. <laughs> and it's, it's probably a good time now to really think of things with growth in mind. So those two books were very important to me in my journey out of burnout and really did help to inform me about a lot of things about myself that I needed to know in moving forward. Not only things that I needed to know, but things about me that it was time to embrace as opposed to things that I needed to try to change because of what had been validated in my education and in my training. Mm. I am so curious to hear you talk more about this fixed mindset, Mm -hmm. because I think that our our training in whatever healthcare field that we're in, we kind of get this very specific line of thinking about how things have been done, how things should be done, whether that's clinic procedures or certain types of treatments or ways that you interact with patients. Um, I'd love to hear you speak a little bit more about some of the things that were fixed in your brain? Like what were some of the things that you encountered where you're like, whoa, actually that isn't (laughs) something that I have to do, but I thought I had to do it that way. Yeah. I I think that my fixed mindset really developed early on in my childhood. I think for those of us who are higher achievers, who were really great students, we are so often praised for being smart or being a certain way and not so much for the hard work that we put in particularly as children, and before we really get to know ourselves in this state of appearing smart or appearing competent or appearing qualified without recognizing that each of us has the ability to grow and to change and to do different things. And that while we may not be good at something, it doesn't mean that we can't be good at it later on. But I think that that validation of intelligence does very often result in children in particular or students in particular feeling that they are either smart or not smart, they're either capable or not capable, and very often keeps them stuck in that fixed mindset of, I have all of the intelligence I'm ever going to have. I have all of the ability I'm ever going to have. And again, it's probably subconscious, but I don't have the ability to stretch myself or to grow myself or to develop this particular skill. So as you can imagine, that wasn't helpful for me and isn't really helpful for those of us who are really seeking to grow these skills that are necessary to bring our work and life in alignment. The word that keeps popping into my head when you're talking about this is imposter syndrome. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I think that a lot of times when we think that we have to know it all and we have to portray this image of ourselves as I'm the smart kid and I'm the one that's the high achiever. And if I don't know the answer to this thing that this patient's asking me or my Mm -hmm. residency director is asking me, they're going to know. 
mm-hmm. they're going to know I'm stupid. They're going to know that I've hit my limit of intelligence and I'm never going to go anywhere past this. So yeah, I was hearing echoes of imposter syndrome, imposter mm-hmm. syndrome. Yeah. I did experience some time <laughs> feeling very much like an imposter. During residency, actually, I had that meeting that all of us have to have with the chief of the department for that letter of reference. So everyone has to do it. That letter has to come from a specific individual. And I actually remember when my imposter syndrome started, and it was really there in that meeting when in needing that reference letter for residency, I indicated my want to stay at that program for residency where I went to medical school for pediatrics and was told that if I wanted to stay there, I should really consider also trying to match for family practice. (laughs) And as someone who absolutely loves what they do, that said to me that with everything that I had done, with all of the hard work that I had put in, with my record, I was not enough to have a more encouraging conversation about matching for pediatrics at that institution. So I actually went on to match at an institution that was higher ranked for pediatrics. And as you can imagine, I got in there in my mind by look. I was not supposed to be there. Mm. And so I I very much acted like I wasn't supposed to be there. When you feel like an imposter, you do things that imposters do. And you really do show up like an imposter. (laughs) And I went on to be asked to be chief resident at that program. And so now I am at an institution that I'm not supposed to be at, that I got in on look, and I'm now chief resident of this program, and I am an even bigger imposter because I wasn't even supposed to be here to begin with. So I don't know if you all are familiar with that imposter syndrome diagram where (laughs) we've all seen it. And at the top where there's the anxiety and doubt, there is that decision tree, whether you're going to procrastinate or whether you're going to overperform and put out even more than you probably need to. Well, for me, there really wasn't that third arm of (laughs) self-sabotage. And so I, I think I took it really to a whole new level. But I say all that to say that I think burnout, as I'm telling my story, it doesn't happen most often in an instance. It's something that builds up over time. And I I do think that my experience with imposter syndrome, the four years there in that program, feeling like I really didn't belong there, only fueled what was to come later on. I'm curious, what were some of the behaviors that you did while feeling like an imposter? You know, how does an imposter act, I guess is what I'm asking. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, you know, knowing things, but doing differently, I guess I would say. Um, I, I think just feeling less than and feeling not worthy and really not showing up in a way that demonstrated the knowledge that I had for taking care of patients. And so in that way, really showing up as someone who didn't belong there. Yeah. I I will share a little bit of my experience because imposter syndrome is something that I continually struggle with. Certainly it's not something I've conquered in my life. But for me, it also shows up in how I interact with patients, first of Mm -hmm. all, where I feel like not only do I have to be knowledgeable about what they're coming to see me for, but I have to also entertain them and be kind and have them love me and be the best provider they've ever Mm -hmm. seen. Otherwise, I failed Mm -hmm. and I don't deserve to be there. Mm -hmm. Or it shows up in terms of if I think that there is maybe a suggestion for how to work with a patient that another colleague is asking questions about, I won't share as much of my voice because I think, oh, well, I don't, I don't really know. They probably already thought of that. You don't mm-hmm. offer up as much of yourself because you're worried about that vulnerability of being out there. Right. You remind yourself all the time, I have these skills, I have these valuable things that I can offer. And it is true, you know, the world is kind of missing out on what you have to offer Mm -hmm. when you're holding that stuff back. But it can be a real challenge when you feel like already you're in a job and a a position at that job that you don't belong in. Yeah, I think you, you really do keep yourself very small and really not wanting to be seen. And that's very hard to do. And most areas of medicine, it's hard to do as a resident. It's really, really hard to do as a chief resident. And so, you know, I think back on that time, it was a painful time for me, but I now have so much compassion for that 
that resident. And yeah, I, I think it's important to talk about. So I, again, this is sort of an aside, but these types of conversations are so healing because I think that when you feel like an imposter, you really feel like you're the only one who's experiencing that feeling. And I think that talking about it is freeing. And it's something that I talk about quite a bit with my clients. It's, as you alluded to, not something that just goes away because you work on it. It's something that you have very good days with and some days where you still struggle with it. But <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> whenever, whenever it shows up, it's really very important to be honest about it, to really be vulnerable. And I think that there's some healing in that. So Yolanda, from your experience yourself and also in coaching women, what are the common themes you're seeing in your coaching practice that women need to embrace or let go of or what do they need to do differently perhaps? Sure. I think that the need to always feel on, this this does spill a little bit into boundaries, but I think that our lives are so busy. We are saying yes to so many things. We're climbing ladders. We're multitasking. We're juggling family and work and self-care and all of those things. And we we feel that if we're not overwhelmed, then we're just not doing enough. Even when self-care is involved, if we're not doing all of the self-care items, if we're not checking off all of the boxes for self-care, we're just not doing enough. And so that is that's one thing. It's really how do we go from 70 miles per hour to 20? How do we go there and really be okay with it and know that it's okay to slow down and to not do all of the things? So that's probably the main thing is being okay and being comfortable with slowing down and taking a break and having it not mean that you're slacking or doing something that is irresponsible. Imposter syndrome, I work with clients quite a bit on. Inner critic is a topic that comes up quite a bit. I review with clients the various types of inner critic. We work on how to address that voice when it comes up in your head. Clients will often identify with one particular type and say, wow, that inner critic, that's the one that speaks loudest to me. That's cool. Is there anything else that you think is like a common thread between your clients? Uh, A lack of self-worth and issues with self-love. It's interesting that doesn't typically come up at the very beginning of the coaching relationship, but it is underneath all of this other stuff with the drive to do more and be more and also the negative talk that comes about. All of it's typically rooted in our sense of worthiness coming from someplace outside of ourselves and a real lack of self-love. And when the relationship really goes there and unearths that, wow, this is really at the core of it, that is a time when even more healing occurs, even more movement forward occurs. I'm curious from your perspective, working with clients in this space, do you think this this is an issue that affects women more strongly in the workplace as healthcare providers? Is it something that particularly impacts women and in what specific ways? I think that there are definitely males that are affected, but I don't know that I don't know that it it affects them in the same way. I mean, this is a question for which I'm offering my opinion, but I don't know that it affects them in the same way. I think that we as women have different expectations. So we have expectations surrounding being the nurturer, having traditional roles within the home, doing all the things, making sure that these things are together for the children and I just think that traditionally our roles are different and that we may take on things that our counterparts just don't take on. I know that when it comes to imposter syndrome, certainly men suffer with imposter syndrome as well. And it may just not show up as it shows up in us. Yeah. And in our podcast that we did about imposter syndrome too, one of the things that we discovered in our research was that women are more affected than men, or at least they reported more. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's hard to say what it truly is. But mm-hmm. one of the common themes that seemed to emerge in the things that we read about imposter syndrome were that anyone who is in an environment where there aren't people that look like them. Mm-hmm. And that can be in reference to gender, mm-hmm. to race, to being a first-generation college student. I mean, all these mm-hmm. things where if you don't see people that have a story similar to yours mm-hmm. or who look similar to you or who are from a similar background as you, you're going to feel like you don't belong. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And so it's common, especially in fields where women are less represented. So in the tech sector, for example, mm-hmm. there's probably far fewer women, things like that. And so I could see how women could be affected in a lot of ways, because I think historically women haven't been in the healthcare realm as much. I think that's really changing. I know that some recent mm-hmm. statistics I've read about medical school admissions, it's primarily women who are in that field, but I don't think that that's always been the case. And we still see a lot of leadership in education, in professional organizations that are male-led. Yeah, I agree. I think that that is, is definitely a part of it. So when you're talking about the feeling of having to be at 70 miles per hour. You're mm-hmm. you're not doing enough unless you're totally overwhelmed. And I think mm-hmm. that really speaks to a feeling of a lot of times women in healthcare are affected by not just things in the workplace, but also their roles outside of the workplace and at home. And it sounds to me like you're saying that burnout is really a workplace issue, but also a home life issue. And we can't address one without the other. Yeah, I absolutely think so. I think that if I only, during my episodes of burnout, I think if I only had work to think about, if I only had my work life to consider, I may have continued to work in the same way that I was working. But as a mom on weekends, finishing my charting from the week, knowing that my kids were outside playing with other children and their mommies while I was inside. It's interesting just thinking back on that time, I remember thinking, well, at least they're outside with a mommy. It's not their mommy, but at least it's a mommy that's outside with them. And you know how sad that is (laughs) now thinking about it. You know, I do think that managing home expectations and doing things within the home adds to that feeling of, I need to be doing even more. So I do think that it is not just a work issue. It is a life issue, really. Well, it sounds like when you're describing it, almost an imposter syndrome of being a mom. I'm not a mother, but I've heard a lot of women describe that mom guilt of I'm Mm -hmm. not doing enough, which... Mm -hmm. Sounds a lot like what we said about imposter syndrome, mm-hmm. maybe not to the, the same level. I do think that that's exactly right. We want to show up. We want to appear as if we are managing everything so well and with our ability to really go into everyone's lives to see really what they want to present to us because of social media. As adults, we too are susceptible to thinking that if our lives are not picture perfect, we're really just not doing it well. And that, of course, fuels all the overwhelm that we're discussing in the other realm of life outside of work. So my follow-up to this would be, what is the antidote to all of this overwhelm? Where do you start with clients that come to you? They're going at that 70 miles per hour. They're super burned out, overwhelmed with work, with their home life. Where do you go from there? So I start off with talking about the importance of doing a deeper dive. So what I do in working with clients is very much like what I did when I was going through my own experience, as I feel that it was it's extremely effective for me. And so it's, it's how I start most clients off. And that is with taking inventory. So setting aside time to think about all of the areas of life, work, home, relationships, including relationships with oneself, physical environments that we occupy. So really thinking about each area of life and considering which of those areas create feelings of disharmony, meaning resentment, anger, fury, feelings of burnout, what's not okay in those areas of life, and what instances are not sustainable. So what I find is that many clients don't have a time set aside for thought work. And of course, when you're going 70 miles per hour, you're giving to everyone and you're very often not giving to yourself. So starting off with pausing, however hard that's got to be, and for many Many clients, it is very challenging to pause and set aside time just for self to ponder some of these things. So it's really just, as I said, starting off with really taking an inventory. I personally, again, if clients ask, I very often will recommend Miracle Morning, which is a morning practice that was developed by Hal Elrod. I don't know whether you all are familiar with it, but it uses the acronym SAVERS in order to 
include components that are helpful for balance, et cetera. So those savers are silence, affirmation, visualization, exercise, reading, and scribing or journaling. And so if clients are interested, I do offer that as a very specific morning routine, but just something time set aside for contemplation, I think is very, very important. And then following that, really determining what is it that is desired in all of those areas? So once they're explored, what are the preferences? So those areas that are causing the disharmony, if they are causing disharmony or if there are aspects of each that are, are really undesirable, what are the preferences? And this I find as one of the trickiest parts because very often in healthcare, we are really, really good at determining what we can do. Okay, we can do a lot of things. We can overbook our schedules. We can work through lunch. We can go without. We can go without. We can go without. But it is a little bit more challenging to determine what it is that we want to do. So I find that this can be very challenging for clients to really nail down, well, what is it that you want as opposed to what is it that you can do? And so in doing that, figuring out what are your deal breakers in those situations where you don't feel harmony? What do you want to change? What can you let go of? What is within your control? Okay, so that can be a challenging task as well. And then really what what serves you? What's the thing that is going to be life-giving for you? What is it that you want to incorporate that's going to fill your cup so that you can continue doing what it is that you want to do? And the last bit of work is really creating a boundary. And, and sometimes just creating that one boundary of setting aside quiet time to contemplate is the boundary that sets off the cascade of empowerment and encouragement to create more boundaries. So sometimes it's just a little one. Sometimes it's a, a physical change in the environment. It's deciding that I don't want any more of this in my physical space, but that sets off a chain reaction and empowers clients to figure out other places to build all of the boundaries. But those are typically the steps that I recommend going through is really taking inventory, figuring out the preferences with specific focus on what it is that that client really wants as opposed to what they can have in their lives. And then figuring out what is it that I need to change in order to make those things happen. I absolutely love the idea of just pausing and taking inventory because so often burnout creeps up because we're so busy. We don't have time mm -hmm. to consider what do I need in this moment? What could I do differently? What would make this job situation better? Because we're on autopilot when we're so burned and overwhelmed, you start to operate based off of reflex and habit instead of truly making a decision about what it is that you want. So I think that's just a first an incredible piece of advice. And to your point earlier, when you were talking about your first job that you were at out of residency and feeling like you had to do all the things, it sounds like you didn't have anyone around who was doing something similar. So it probably did take a, a lot of pondering because there wasn't an example for you, right? Like there wasn't somebody in your immediate space who was practicing these things and, and being a model of, actually, I'm not going to say yes to this call or I'm not going to say yes to this additional thing. So I think part of that is just sometimes we don't know what's possible in our jobs because we don't see it. Absolutely. And even as a pediatrician in my, my clinical work, I have the opportunity to take care of quite a number of teens. <laughs> and as they're getting older and they're thinking about their graduation and what they want to do afterwards, I really do make a point to let them know how important it is to find mentorship in every space that they see their future selves in, finding someone who is doing exactly what it is that they want to do as a reference, as someone to talk things over with, because I do feel that mentorship would have made all of the difference in my experience. Again, I may have still experienced burnout, but I, I think that having a mentor would have steered me in some different directions and may have gotten me out of that situation a little bit sooner. Yeah, I think that the mentorship shows you that there's a different possibility and it starts to empower you, especially as a new provider of what can you do, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. because you kind of think I have to do everything. I'm new. I don't know. And so there's no like, um, kind of like when you play bowling, you know, you can have those, those sides down to keep your ball going straight ahead. We need that. We need to not mm -hmm. be in the gutter. We mm -hmm. need some railings to help ourselves. 
And I know that for me, part of my imposter syndrome got in the way of me seeking mentorship. I think that it shows when you're not confident in yourself, it's almost like I didn't want anyone to come close enough to figure out that I, in fact, was an imposter. And so the thought of deeply closely working with someone probably right when I needed mentorship the most (laughs) um, was the thing that I was least likely to do. But during my time of burnout, I also turned towards coaching. It felt more accessible. It felt more uh, approachable than starting therapy or going into counseling. I thought that that was more so the area to get into. And coaching is you sitting with someone who creates the space for you to reflect which you may have been avoiding. That's the other thing I thought of is, yeah, you're going 70 miles an hour, but sometimes you're going 70 miles an hour because you don't want to sit down. Mm-hmm. You know, you kind of know that what's going on around you is not the most beautiful thing you could imagine for yourself. It's not the best version of your life. But if you're busy, 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 you never really have to face that truth. It's mm-hmm. just the thing that keeps you up at night. It's just the thing that drives you to push harder. But to have another person witness that, I think is also the power of coaching. Absolutely. I think that when we talk about mentorship, really seeking a mentor in a way is very much like asking for help. <laughs> and that's that's something that it's very, very difficult for us to do. And again, gross generalization, but I can say that I have met a few people <laughs> that have difficulties asking for help in my time. And I think that, as you just said, when you're going that fast, stopping also is an indicator that the course that you're on is not the right course. And we don't really want to be wrong about what we're doing either. And so asking for help, admitting that, that there may be some things I need to change are all sometimes very difficult to do. So earlier you had also mentioned that a lot of your journey that you're now coaching people through was also accepting who you are. Mm-hmm. And that speaks to what you've mentioned a couple times now is this authenticity. Like you can say yes to everything, but what yeses matter the most? I was going to say that, you know, that I am flawed, that I'm not perfect, that I am perfectly imperfect, that I am quiet, that I do prefer quiet time. I live in a very busy household and everyone here knows that the first 30 minutes of me coming home, really for everything to go great for the rest of the evening needs to be with me being in some quiet space and not feeling that that's wrong. That's just who I am. But as I mentioned, it is very often the thought that if we are not out, if we're not in constant conversation or engaging continually that that there is something wrong. So embracing that part of myself and really having self-compassion for the past. So I did talk about my experience with imposter syndrome. I don't know that I've actually ever shared that. So (laughs) first time here, really having spent some years really working through it, but that I experienced that and I felt like a fraud and it's completely okay. So I do think that the honesty and embracing even the very challenging experiences, that's authenticity. And it it is so healing and it's so freeing. And another thing that clients typically need work around is stripping away all of what we have piled on, our adaptive presentation, and really stripping all of that away to be more authentic and acknowledging our journey and where we have fallen short and where we're planning to grow. That's so powerful. When you strip away all of the extra BS, so Mm -hmm. to speak. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you really really know who you are, what you need, what your values are. You can operate from that place of what are my core values and what am I hoping to achieve in my life and in this situation instead of just reacting. I think that also gives us the confidence then to draw a boundary because Mm -hmm. if you know that I'm an introvert, I need some quiet time. (laughs) And that's just who I am. And that's okay. If that becomes okay for you to be that way, then it's so much easier for you to go, no, actually, it's okay for me to request this for my family. It's okay for me to take that 30 minutes. I'm not a bad mom. I'm not a bad person for wanting or needing that. There's all this talk about boundary setting. But if we don't get that first part of accepting Mm -hmm. who we are and what we need, 
you can set a boundary, but you're still going to feel guilty about it. Absolutely. What you're referring to is those internal boundaries. So the relationships that we have with ourselves and those in my mind are really the first boundaries that deserve Mm. attention because they really do influence every other boundary that we have. And because again, I have been prone to a bit of overwhelm in my time. I really work on the belief that I am exactly where I'm supposed to be right now. I'm doing exactly all of the things that I'm supposed to do and not anything more than what I am doing at the moment. And that belief really does keep me grounded, not only in my pediatrics practice, but also in my coaching practice is really working on the belief that what I'm doing is enough. And I think that that for me is a boundary and it really does help to reduce overwhelm so that I am able to show up in other places without the overwhelm. I'm like, I just want to marinate on that because there's there's two <laughs> things I think of. The first is, how do you set a boundary with yourself? Uh-huh. And then the second is, you know, I'm, I keep hearing how much self-compassion you have for yourself and how much compassion I imagine you can hold for others. Mm-hmm. And that is the antidote to the critic. Mm-hmm. And I feel like the critic is the thing that puts these crazy boundaries on you or maybe has no boundaries. I don't know. But it's like changing that inner critic because if you don't value yourself, then your authenticity doesn't matter. Then the way you show up with other people can't be respected. And so it's like it comes back to that. So those are two thoughts. If you can make sense of those two or, you know, yeah, go for it. (laughs) Yeah. I, I, again, I really do firmly believe this, this idea of, I really need to feel okay about myself. I really do need to value myself. I need to have more compassion for myself and know that it's okay that I am not perfect. (laughs) I think that all of that is so necessary before doing all of the other work and in any of the other relationships, as I mentioned, but it really doesn't typically come up first during the client relationship. It's all of the other stuff. And then once we find that, wow, we we really get to a point where we're kind of stuck. We can't really move farther along in the journey until we get to this dealing with this lack of worth. We can't really move forward without addressing that. And the way to do that is really to get the negative beliefs out on the table, all of the negative self-beliefs out and addressing them one by one, because it just makes sense that they're not at all helpful in moving forward or getting unstuck. So the hard thing too, is that when you're burned out, you don't typically have a lot of faith in your ability to do anything well. And so getting these out first and foremost, even though it doesn't typically occur first, but in order to make the bigger strides forward, it's necessary to do. So getting those out and reframing them in a bit more of a positive and more constructive light is the key. So challenging that inner critic. And there are lots of ways to do this. I found several ways, several methods for addressing the inner critic and the one that resonates most with me and in my relationships with my clients, I present a few because most often they do need work on how to address that voice. But the one that I really do like the most is really seeing that inner critic as you as a child and recognizing that at some point you really did get stuck. And for whatever reason, this negative critic came on board. It could have been something that someone said to you at the time, but seeing that critic as a child and really wanting to thrive, but really just being stuck. I think that that visual allows me personally to have a little bit more compassion for that voice that is scared and is really trying to send off warning signals for you, but really not in a place to think through things as clearly as the adult you is able to do. There are many different ways of looking at the critic, putting the critic away, which I find keeping the critic out, but really seeing the critic for what the critic is, is most valuable to me. And you asked about self-compassion and what can I say? I think that simply recognizing our imperfection and embracing it and being vulnerable, as I mentioned, being vulnerable at every turn. I think that being vulnerable was a part of, of me coming out of burnout as well. Just voicing that, wow, I really don't have it all together. And guess what? I am, I'm fried (laughs) and I really need help in moving past all of this. So really speaking that truth was helpful, being vulnerable. 
Yeah, it's such a shame-based thing. It's all about getting it out in the open. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A lot of this burnout is a result of us having unrealistic expectations for ourselves and being overly critical of ourselves. If we can get some of that out in the open and have some different data mm-hmm. for, oh my gosh, I actually am doing okay. And this other person's struggling too. Everybody mm-hmm. struggles. Mm-hmm. Shame cannot stand up to a spotlight. Absolutely. So I'm curious about the boundary aspect. It sounds like what you're saying is is the first, first step is to work on that self-critic, develop self-compassion, acknowledge your inherent self-worth so that you can uphold a boundary. So let's mm-hmm. talk next steps. Now I'm thinking, okay, so we've worked on this aspect of things in the context of healthcare. Let's say that somebody's working in a very rigid workplace setting or they have some sort of institutional barriers to designing their workplace in a way that helps them feel less burned out. I'm curious some of the strategies that you've helped clients with. Well, I mentioned sustainability and this is debatable, but I do think that there's some situations that are they're just not sustainable. And working with a client recently and hearing about her experiences with work, it was clear to me that a particular work situation really wasn't sustainable. And that in the course of our relationship, we really wouldn't be talking about that that issue very much longer because it really wasn't something that she could stay in and work through. And so, you know, sometimes I, I offer that question, how sustainable is this for you, given what you know about the structure, regarding your support in the structure, how well your requests will be received. So, you know, sometimes it's a situation that actually has to change. There, there isn't anything within it that can be changed by the individual. That is another instance where a mentor might be helpful, particularly if a client feels very comfortable with one person in the organization to discuss concerns with, just in, in terms of navigating leadership and finding the right people to present with requests. So I would say really determining sustainability, but also looking for support within the structure. I think it can be challenging Mm -hmm. to go those routes alone. Yeah, there are some instances where you can request things of your institution, but other times Mm -hmm. it may just not be the right fit. Exactly. going along with your story that you shared with us, you found a job that fit better with your, your life. It did. It it did fit in quite well with my goals for time with family. For the time that I really wanted to spend with patients, I really wanted to spend a lot more time with patients and their families. That was something that I was really having a hard time doing in my initial job, just not saying hello and goodbye within seven and a half minutes. It wasn't really something that I wanted to continue doing. But yeah, as I said, some situations are just not sustainable. And it's important to recognize those earlier rather than later, because changing those situations really does open up space to entertain quite a bit more. And imagining that new space for yourself is kind Mm -hmm. of hard. Like people Mm -hmm. can think of what they're going to lose. Like, I'm not going to have the security of my job or I'm going to not have these benefits. But you don't so much think in that mindset, what am I going to gain How am I going to feel when Mm -hmm. I come home from work and I'm not so tired that I'm just going for the wine bottle and trying to crash? What would it be like to imagine this more positive view for yourself? And I know for me, that was really challenging when I was in the midst of my darker moments was like, so you know what you don't want, but what is it that you do want Mm -hmm. is such a tough question. It kind Mm -hmm. of floors you like, what? Yeah, particularly if you've never had the opportunity to do that. You've never been asked the question. It's really never come up because you've spent most of your time considering what it is, as I said, that you can do, not really what it is that you want to do. It's a skill that goes uncultivated. It goes without attention because there's so much of a focus on do more, do more, do more, be more, be more, be more, instead of really what is most in line with what I really want. So you really did hit on the challenge very often. And that is, okay, I know what I don't want, but what is it that I do want? And very often there's a void and it can take some time in order to connect with self and determine likes as opposed to cans, desires as opposed (laughs) Mm -hmm. to what I am able to do. 
And I would say that's an evolving process as someone who's gone through a few cycles of burnout now. I've had to iterate on that. The first time I went through burnout, I just thought similar to you, okay, new setting, it'll take care of it. (laughs) I got to the new setting. I actually had an additional setting. It wasn't until my third job that I was like, okay, (laughs) hmm, I guess, (laughs) I guess this is probably me related. So I guess each time I was thinking of what's the next thing I want, what's the next thing I want. And so I guess for someone listening, I would say to you, there's not necessarily a moment where you just know and you have it all figured out. It's like being open to that growth mindset and Mm -hmm. just recognizing that as your life unfolds, as you just grow in general, you may evolve to wanting new things. And I think that fixed mindset that you mentioned is more of an issue than I guess I even realized because if if you think you have to have it all figured out and you think that everything has to be just this way, you're not open to the natural evolution, which isn't even a bad thing. Mm -hmm. Like, You don't need to be punished for having a new desire or a different interest that comes into your life. That's not something to be mad at yourself for or like, Mm -hmm. oh, I should have known earlier. And I guess I'm speaking to my younger self because I did a lot of that. I had a coach who was like, you're trying to be a spiritual perfectionist. You can't know everything. You can't, (laughs) you know, do it all right. You got to let it go. So that evolution is really normal too. But navigating the transition of an evolution is not a skill set that I at least was taught. (laughs) Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think that can be really challenging. I think that for many of us in healthcare, the path to where we're headed is so well mapped out. We don't even have to think about what the next steps are. And really figuring out desires and wants is, it's, there's a different feeling associated with it. There isn't a roadmap. And as I mentioned before, really working on the belief that wherever it is that you have been and wherever it is that you may decide you want to go, at this very moment, you're where you're supposed to be. You're not supposed to know more than you know. And, and really having patience with, with the journey as it has unfolded is so important. I think, again, even as we're trying to get ourselves out of burnout, we're beating ourselves over the head for not really knowing what the next (laughs) steps are. And so um, it's a process, as you're alluding to. It is definitely a process, but one that is done best with a lot of self-compassion for where that individual is, where you are at any given point in time. And for support, because when you were talking just now about how we have so much guidance for healthcare education, you didn't create your own physical therapy program or Mm -hmm. physician program. You went to a program that a group of people curated and cultivated over time. And so as you're exploring your own life path, why do it alone? I mean, that's the beauty of coaching, of having mentorship, of having friends to discuss this with. No one can answer the questions for you but that is also not a reason to try to do this alone in the dark by yourself. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Yolanda, it has been an absolute pleasure to talk about imposter syndrome, authenticity, the inner critic. I feel like we covered every area (laughs) of, of burnout and struggle. And so thank you for bringing your voice of compassion on here and for sharing a new part of your story, for trusting us with that story on here today. It's been an absolute honor to talk with you. Well, it has been a pleasure speaking with you all. And I thank you for allowing me the opportunity to share that journey. I think that it's, again, one that I hope to hear over and over and over again, because I think that when we share stories, we lift each other and we almost give permission for others to share their stories, too. Definitely. Well, we'll end today with our lightning round of questions. These are some kind of fun (laughs) questions we like to ask all of our guests when they come on. The first question is, what is your favorite drink at the moment? Oh my gosh. My favorite drink is so bland, is really water. (laughs) Uh, I have have a new appreciation. As a coffee lover, I recognize that there is only so much coffee that can be taken in during the day. So water is my current friend. 
<laughs> we, we saw on your Instagram that you were a big runner. And so yeah. I, I was thinking to myself, spoken like a true runner. <laughs> yeah. What is your favorite book that you've read lately? Oh, my gosh. It has got to be, and I'm still reading it, Boundary Boss by Terry Cole. It mm-hmm. is mind-blowing. And it's interesting when you uncover a concept. Again, boundaries is not a new concept, but I've only done some deeper diving into it recently. But how you start to see boundary issues everywhere. So <laughs> I would say it is a book that I'm currently reading that I'm really enjoying. Excellent. What is the first thing you do in a challenging situation? I am very still and very quiet. Surprise. (laughs) (laughs) Introverts unite. Yep. (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. Awesome. If you weren't a physician slash coach, what would you do for work? That's a hard one. Oh my gosh, I don't know whether I have an answer to that. (sighs) Yeah. I can't really imagine doing anything else. That's work for me. Yeah. You see? See how it works? (laughs) I really, really can't. Yeah. Well, it sounds like if you can't think of anything else you'd rather be doing, then you're probably in a great place. Yeah, I really, really can. And I do love what I do. I can say that so confidently and with such love that I really, really, I do enjoy it so much. Final question for you today. Mm -hmm. How do you define a conscious clinician? A conscious clinician, I think of a caregiver that is constantly seeking growth and awareness around around clinical situations. So being very aware of self, being very aware of population served, but seeking to grow. Mm. So Yolanda, if people wanted to get in touch with you after this episode, what's the best way for them to do that? The best way is to go to my Instagram account, go beyond coach MD, to click on the link in my bio and to schedule an appointment for a discovery session or to just send me a direct message. Excellent. We will link all of your contact info in the show notes, all of the fabulous book recommendations that you provided for us. It's clear that you're an avid reader. For everyone listening, she's got a huge bookshelf behind her loaded (laughs) up with stuff. Um, So it's real what you're hearing. Thanks again, Yolanda. It's been such a pleasure. And as always, stay conscious. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Let's keep the conversation going on Instagram at The Conscious Clinician and Facebook backslash The Conscious Clinician. Links are in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and write a review for the podcast to grow our community. Stay conscious, everyone.